Today's scripture reading is in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You can find that in the Blue Pew Bible on page 837. In chapter 1, we see Jesus travels throughout Galilee, healing many people. His reputation spreads so much that he stops going to the larger towns and to avoid the crowds that are coming to see him. In chapter 2, he returns to Capernaum. And now the word of the living God. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The Word of God. Our uh, title, as you can see, is The Kingdom Comes, uh, Forgiveness Guaranteed. It could also subtitle this as The Kingdom Comes... uh, a response, an astonishing response. Uh, sometimes you get an unexpected, uh, funny response from someone. I've told this story before, but just to remind you, I was driving my daughter, Anna Kate, around looking for a place for their reception. She and her fiance were in the back seat. And so we were talking and I said, so uh, tell me, where are you thinking about for your honeymoon? What are you going to do? And my little hunter daughter responded and said, well, I want to kill something. (laughs) I would call that a funny response, right? But sometimes it's an unexpected, tragic response. Like the writer uh, R.D. Rosen, who was at a Passover Seder meal in Greenwich Village in the early 2000s. And he says, I was sitting across from this lady who looked to be like in her 70s, and she had short blonde hair. She really didn't look Jewish, but she had this slight European accent. 
Um, and, and he said she had the appealing air of someone who's perpetually on the verge of laughter. So she was, he was really interested in her. And so he engaged her in conversation as soon as they could and found out her name was Sophie. And he said, so I, I can't really place your accent. Where are you from? She says, I'm from Poland. He says, well, I'm, I'm half Polish as well on, on my father's side. And kind of judging her age, she said, so were you in Poland during the war as World War II? She said, yes, I was. And he said, well, what were you doing there? And he said she answered with the same kind of emotion that she would if she was just telling you that she saw what movie she saw the night before. And she simply said, I was hiding. And then he finds out that she was in Lvov, Poland, which is now a part of Ukraine, in which there were 100,000 Jews at the beginning of the war, and at the end of the war, there were 300. And the general statistics of Europe, a third of the adult Jews were murdered by the Nazis. 90% of the Jewish children were murdered by the Nazis. So when he says, where were you? She said, hiding. <laughs> so unexpected, funny response, unexpected, tragic response. Well, what we have here from Jesus in this narrative is an unexpected, astonishing response as he reveals who he really is. Now, we don't know when these four guys decided to take their friend to the house, if they were thinking along the way, something like this, maybe one of them said, hey, Phineas, if we get to the house and it's crowded, let's just drop Jonathan through the roof. I'm just making up names here, of course. Uh, Or maybe they weren't even thinking about it and they got there, saw that it was crowded and kind of looked at each other like guys do with a smile and just said, roof, 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 you know, marching up the steps Because it's always a good day when a guy can tear something up, right? So you're sitting there in this house, packed so tightly that people are spilling out the front door. It's like an overstuffed suitcase. And you're there because you want to hear this man who teaches with authority. You've heard about his healings. You've heard about the casting out of demons. All the newspapers are running this as headlines, right? He's, it's the buzz in all the coffee shops and all the pubs. And so you're sitting there leaning into every word and suddenly you hear a sound on the roof. And that's not unusual because uh, people are all the time up on their roofs in that day. That a roof was a storage place. And so, but that's a lot of people on the roof. And not only that, you start hearing noises, scratching... The, Somebody's digging a hole in the roof. They're just interrupting Jesus' teaching right there. And so you start seeing uh, you start seeing dried mud and straw and wood start falling through. People start backing off and sun- suddenly there's sunlight breaking through. And they just keep digging bigger and bigger hole. You can't imagine what they're doing. And suddenly you see they've got Jonathan up there. Jonathan the lame man. 
They're letting him down. They're letting him down to Jesus. And so here's some arms go up, you know, they, they grab it. They say, we got him, we got him. Keep lower, keep lowering him. They get down. Okay, he's down. So the dust is settling, lights there. You see those faces of those men looking down. Everybody's quiet, expecting Jesus to say something like, you're healed. And then he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Astonishing response. What? Forgiveness? It's like a small bomb went off in that place. And of course, the scribes are stunned. The scribes are just churning in their minds. How can he say such a thing? This is blasphemy. And Mark's actual language here is that they said, uh, that, that, that they said, who can forgive sins but one? That is God. Okay? So this was alluding to the great confession of the Old Testament. That God is one. It's the way of saying there's only one who can forgive sins. It's God and no other. And then Mark tells us that Jesus even knew what they were thinking. They had not said anything out loud. He knew what they were thinking. This is just one more way that he is displaying the absolute authority of Jesus in this situation. And you notice that in response to their thoughts, Jesus doesn't say, whoa, wait, 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 wait. You you misunderstand me. I didn't mean that I could forgive sins. I, I just meant you know, like, may God forgive your sins. I would never just pronounce somebody's sins forgiven. I mean, only God can do such a thing. I would never say that. We all know that that's not right. You know, he could have done something like that, right? He could have backed off. But instead of denying that he could forgive sins, he goes on to display that, yes, indeed, he can forgive sins. That he does have that authority to forgive sins. And so he asked this question, which you kind of get the answer, right? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? And, and we get it because, because, yeah, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. You don't know if they're forgiven or not because you can't see it. But if you say, rise, take up your bed and walk... The proof better be right there or you're ridiculous and you have no authority. And so Jesus moves into it, right? And he says, so that you may know then that the Son of Man does have authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, it's important as a little parenthesis here to... Uh, notice this phrase, son of man, that he uses, because it's the first time that Jesus uses it in uh, Mark. And this comes from Daniel chapter 7, where we hear that one like a son of man coming up in a cloud, he's coming up in a cloud to God. And the cloud, in those contexts, acts like a royal chariot. You know, like he's moving in a royal chariot to God. And it says that from God, who's called the Ancient of Days there, he receives an everlasting kingdom where all peoples and nations and languages will serve him. That is the phrase that he uses to describe himself. The Son of Man. 
And so he is saying that he is the mighty son of man who now is exercising his kingly authority to heal and forgive sins on earth. That is Jesus' amazing claim right here. And to say, uh, uh, to say, rise, pick up your bed and go home is a complete reversal, right, of how he got there. Four guys pick him up probably at home. They carry him helpless on his bed. But then he gets up out of that bed. He picks the bed up and he carries the bed all the way home. What a wonderful reversal of life for him at that point. And of course, everybody was astounded. Not only that he had healed the man but because he claimed to forgive sins and then he went on and proved that he could by raising him up from his disease. So Jesus is saying, in effect, the authority with which I heal this man is the same authority with which I forgive this man. Just as his disease is gone, so the guilt of his sin is gone. Now, My guess, and that's all it can be as a guess, is that the four friends clamored down the stairs to join him and they had a raucous time going home (laughs) together. I can just imagine all the shouting and the yelling and and the slapping on the back and hugging and just staring at him. They just can't believe, you're walking, you're walking. You know, you just imagine all the way home just amazed at this, this little moving party uh, praising God and, and uh, reviewing the healing over and over as they talk about it and celebrate it till they're all as hoarse as a TCU fan at the recent Peach Bowl, right? <laughs> so now, so here's this glorious, wonderful, exciting narrative. And I want to ask in a more precise way, so what does this have to do with us? You know, what, what, what can we learn? How do we grow? How do we encounter this? How, do, how does this encounter our lives? And I want to talk first about forgiveness and then talk about faith. So forgiveness and faith. Now, as we talk about forgiveness, uh, I, I really want to look at this term, son of man. Because this is the sweetest message you'll ever hear is that Jesus Christ can and will forgive your sins. But how does it work? I mean, this is so early in the story, it seems, for him to just be pronouncing this. How, how does it work that he, as the Son of Man, can forgive our sins? Well, this, this term, as I said, this is the first time it's used. But it's used 14 times in the book of Mark. And it's used in three different ways. One way is the way it's used in chapter 2, just two times. First, he has authority over to, to forgive sins, and he has authority over the Sabbath. Okay, That's kind of one category, his authority. And then another category is the one in which he describes himself as the Son of Man who will be coming in the clouds or in the glory the second time to judge the world and to begin ruling this world. In a, in a close way, in a chain, transformed way. So that is the one that's closest to the statement in 
Daniel where in, he comes to the Ancient of Days on a cloud. And here he's coming to earth on that same chariot cloud, you see, to judge the world and rule the world. But here's the interesting thing. That's five times it's used. Almost twice that many it's used. He uses this term, son of man, to describe his own suffering, death, and resurrection. That's the most common use of this majestic name, son of man, that he will suffer for his kingdom. The great son of man, great and majestic, came to die for his people. As he says in Mark 10, verse 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just think of the juxtaposition of those terms. This glorious son of man, you would think would come to be served, but he said, no, I came to serve even to the point of giving my life as a ransom. That's the Son of Man. And brothers and sisters, that's really the great glory of the Son of Man. That he would come to die for us. Our own, this, this, the song that we just sang, His Be the Victor's Name, has so much of that, doesn't it? By weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell in hell laid low, made sin, he sin overthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. So in his weakness, he manifested his great power and his lordship to deliver his people And he will finally rule over all because he gave his all in his death for his people. And the reason that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth is the Son of Man used his majestic authority to die in the place of sinners, to bear off their punishment completely so that not one bit of condemnation will fall on your head if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the paralytic here is a... It's a a wonderful, in a sense, but kind of a tragic picture of you and me in our sin and guilt. I can't fix my sin. I can't take away my guilt. I can't change all the heaps of sin in my life that are like a city dump that is in its stench and, and burning uh, horror. All the neglect of people, all the refusal of God and the refusal of His will, the mistreatment of others so many times outwardly and then so many more times in my heart. All of these sins constitute me as this paralyzed person in front of him. I lie before him just as sick spiritually as this man was physically. And I must look to him alone to heal me. Only Jesus can heal me just like only Jesus could heal this man. And he says... 
to each of us if we trust him in his royal authority as the son of man. Your sins are forgiven you. And another picture given here is that your sins are taken away, all of them forever, just like that. The healing is a picture of how forgiveness works. It's immediate. It's complete. You don't get a little better and God sees the improvement and he likes you more. And then you get a little better and God sees the improvement and he likes you more. No, you and I are as sick as this man and we come just as we are, not hiding, confessing what we are. And he just heals us. He just forgives us. And that means that from their own, we are living in a forgiven state, just like from their own, he is healed of his paralysis. We are in this new permanent condition of being forgiven, of being accepted, of being embraced by God. This is your new atmosphere in which you live. It's your new situation, your new world. Your new creation is the constant favor and love of God, even in the midst of your discovering more of your sin and in the midst of your changing. You are his beloved. And we must say in the latter part of this section on forgiveness that there is a wonderful relationship between forgiveness And the final healing of your body, okay? A relationship between forgiveness and the final healing of your body. If you're forgiven, your body must finally be healed and restored. To be forgiven of your sins means that uh, if you die, death has only a temporary hold on you. And, And maybe hold is a little too strong a word because... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that your bodies are members of Christ. That means your body, when it's alive, is a member of Christ. It means even when your body is dead, it's a member of Christ. Uh, The answer to one of our catechism questions reads like this. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. That's your soul. Hear what it says about the body. And their bodies being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. And so death doesn't really have you. Jesus has you, right? Your bodies always belong to Christ. And Christ will come one day to claim that which is his. Like at the end of the movie, Man from Snowy River, young Jim Craig has single-handedly captured the wild herd, including the prize stallion that uh, Mr. Harrison lost because it escaped and joined the herd. So he's brought all the horses in safely into the corral. And then he looks at Harrison, with whom they've had quite a bit of disagreement, and he says, there are, I won't use an Australian accent because I can't, okay? <laughs> But there are a dozen, he says, there are a dozen good broodmares in that mob. I'll be back for them. And then he looks over to his daughter, Jessica, and says, and for whatever else is mine. Ooh, yeah. 
You see, I love this in terms of of Christ, that even though our bodies die, Jesus says, these belong to me and I'll be back for them. You never belong to death. Why? Because you are forgiven. That means something, you see. It means something about your whole future destiny. It means something for the future of your body itself. So, forgiveness. And finally, let's talk about faith. This healing not only reveals who Jesus is, the Son of Man who has this authority to heal and forgive, it also shows us something of what faith is, how we should respond to this Son of Man. And you have this little phrase where it says that Jesus saw their faith, when he saw their faith. So, obviously, we're looking at faith in action. Everything that they did to get him to Jesus was an act of faith. These are men who trust in Jesus. This is what not only Jesus is looking for, but that's what Jesus is creating as he reveals himself to people. That's encouraging. As he reveals himself to people, it creates faith within them as the Holy Spirit works within them. And so faith we see in this passage gets to Jesus Faith goes to Jesus. It doesn't stop until it has Jesus. Faith wants Jesus and fights to come to Jesus. Faith sees its need of Jesus and sees that Jesus can meet that need and will meet that need. And and it says when he saw their faith, I think this likely included the paralytic himself. You don't get the impression that he was arguing all the way there, you know, like, put me down, put me down. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. You know, they're letting him down. No, no, no. That that wasn't happening, right? He saw their faith, all of their faith. And they all believed in what Jesus could do. They all had this great hope of what would happen if they could just get him to Jesus. And I think... That the paralytic, at least, maybe some of the others, but it seems like the paralytic, at least, must have been longing in some way for the mercy of God. Maybe he had really struggled with the mercy of God because in his paralysis, he maybe thought that God didn't care about him. Maybe he concluded that his suffering meant that God has turned, had turned his back on him. Maybe he doubted even if there was a God because of his suffering. And maybe a lot of hard-hearted people had reinforced that in his life. But I think that through what he had heard about Christ, however he heard it, that by God's grace in Jesus, he found a new hope for mercy. He had a new hope of being forgiven and loved by God, a new hope that there was a God who cared and that this is some of what was happening when Jesus suddenly, to everybody's astonishment, didn't say, be healed, but he said, your sins are forgiven. And that hope is for you and for me, even in our sufferings, in our terrible loss, 
That He does forgive us. He does restore us to God. He will one day completely heal. And so, do we have... Is the same faith that was created in them being created in us, right? This example of faith is not just there for, for you to admire from a distance... But he writes to encourage us to have this faith. He announces it so that by God's grace, we will have this faith in Christ. And in, in a way, this, their coming to Christ really describes the whole of our lives as Christians. Like getting to Christ. Getting to Christ in our prayer. Getting to Christ in worship. Getting to Christ in the, in the Word. Getting to Christ in your relationships, in your work, in your play, in everyday life. Seeking Him, knowing Him, depending on Him. Their quest kind of defines our whole life. Constantly, expectantly placing myself with all of my many needs before Christ and asking Him to forgive me and heal me continually. And in healing us, We don't just refer to this final physical healing, which certainly will take place, as we've said. But it also means that he will heal us spiritually and morally. So much so that at the end of his short little letter, the the letter that Jude wrote, he says this. He will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I will be blameless even before his glory and I'll have great joy? Remarkable statement. And he begins that moral, spiritual healing right here and now. He begins your renovation, your restoration to being more and more like Christ by the authority he has as the Son of Man. And so I ask you, as I ask myself, are we bringing our present sins to Christ for forgiveness and healing? Am I bringing my weaknesses to Jesus, my failures to Jesus? Am I bringing my words and desires and my thoughts and my habits to Jesus for forgiveness and healing? You know, am I ripping off the roof? All the time to get to Jesus. Does that define my life? And then finally, this, the faith of these men was passionate, wasn't it? Not only just for their sake, but it was really for his sake. And so we need to ask that question, right? Am, am I praying for others? Am I bringing others to Jesus? Am I gossiping about people who've wronged me or am I taking them to Jesus, right? Am I complaining about my church's problems or am I taking those problems to Jesus? Are you bringing your children's needs and your spouse's needs and your friends and your co-workers and neighbors and even your enemies? Are you bringing them to Jesus? That should define our life. And then are we helping each other? You know, actively to believe in Jesus, to come to Jesus, encouraging each other. No doubt, if he had any doubts along the way, his four friends would, you know, encourage him. You know, no, he is. He's going to heal you. He's going to take care of this. He's going to listen. He's going to 
to do his great work in you. And so we need to encourage each other constantly, you see, to get to Jesus. Encourage one another to depend on Jesus. And so we each face so many situations, don't we, that we can't change for one another. But we can be with each other and love each other and encourage each other. Depend upon this mighty son of God that forgives you, that is continually healing you, and one day will transform this whole world as the great son of man who has all authority. How glorious that he has been given to us for our salvation. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would renew our faith, deepen our conviction of who this great Christ is. Lord, we pray that you would so work in our hearts that we would ever be drawn after Christ, ever be seeking him, ever be getting ourselves and others before him, knowing that he always always will forgive and heal and transform. Lord, thank you for such a king so utterly devoted to our good forever. We praise you in his name. Amen.